everybody, and welcome to the fifth and final episode of the limited series Who Knew Presents the New World for our APUSH students at Bishop O'Connell High School and all of our other listeners who have hopped on to this mini-series. I am Mr. Rickson, and with me as always is Mrs. Allgood. Hello! So, Mrs. Allgood, we have, we've come, come to the end, if you will. We've done episodes on Native American tribes of the Southwest and the Northwest. We've talked a little bit about the Spanish, a little bit about the French. And today we're going to close out with a, with a really, really interesting story and topic that I think our student listeners and really all our listeners are really, really going to enjoy. I know that in, in the lead up to our, our recording today, you were talking about how this particular topic is really kind of near and dear to your heart, if you will. It's, it's a sort of weird, quirky, gothic, mysterious part of history. So I'm, I'm eager to, to get, get going with you today. Oh boy, this is something that I wanted to do for our original like mainstream series. So it was really cool that I could do this in this particular episode. But enough about that. Let's go ahead and drop us into history, Mr. Rickson. The year is 1937. Franklin D. Roosevelt is in his second term as U.S. President. Howard Hughes sets a new record from by flying from Los Angeles to New York City in seven hours, 28 minutes, and 25 seconds. In Crystal City, Texas, spinach growers erect a statue of the cartoon character Popeye. The German airship, the Hindenburg, bursts into flames when mooring into a mast in Lakehurst, New Jersey. Amelia Earhart and navigator Fred Noonan disappear after taking off from New Guinea during Earhart's attempt to become the first woman to fly around the world. And in August 1937, a California tourist and his wife stumble upon a 21-pound stone on the banks of the Chowan River in eastern North Carolina. The stone was inscribed with a cryptic message that appeared to solve the mystery of the lost colony of Roanoke. So I, first off, thank you for the sound effects. I really appreciate that. I'm sure the listeners will as well. So I remember when you and I both grew up here in Virginia, and and I remember in fourth grade was, and, and I don't remember if this was the case for you as well, but fourth grade was when you learned about colonial history in your social studies classes. And I definitely remember in fourth grade hearing about this lost colony. And I remember it really piqued my interest because it's one of these, you know, to history mysteries, if you will. And I think the fact that we don't know much about the outcome of this place is why it has remained so popular. But but before we go any further, can you give the listeners some background information on the origins of this so-called lost colony? Yeah, absolutely. So over 30 years before the pilgrims arrived at Plymouth Rock, a group of 117 men, women, and children arrived on Roanoke Island in 1587, uh, which would establish the first attempted settlement of its kind in North America. Now, we do know at this particular time, the Spanish had permanent settlements in Latin America, so Mexico and in South America, but this is the very first kind of foray into what would eventually become the Virginia colony. So for those of you who maybe aren't too familiar with the geography, um, we are on the outer banks of North Carolina in today's episode. So that's probably 
I don't know how far of a drive that is from Northern Virginia. I haven't made that drive yet, but um, it's uh, about halfway down the Outer Banks on what's now known the island of Mantio. And we're kind of, we'll be kind of hopping around uh, the Outer Banks through this particular episode, which is also very seasonal because it's summer and what a great vacation spot, the Outer Banks. Uh, so anyway, um, what's really interesting about this particular um expedition is that it's not an economic venture like we see with the early French or Spanish or even the Jamestown settlement of 1607. Most European expeditions just brought along young single men or military personnel that were seeking wealth or to explore the landscape. So this was meant to be somewhat of a social experiment, kind of. We'll get into that a bit more later. And these people meant to have families and live the rest of their lives here in the new world. So the expedition was funded by Sir Walter Raleigh, who was a favorite in the court of Queen Elizabeth I, good Queen Bess. So I actually learned while researching the Lost Colony that it wasn't actually Sir Walter Raleigh's first attempt at creating a permanent colony in North America. In 1585, he appointed Governor Ralph Lane, a noble in Queen Elizabeth's court, to establish a colony on Roanoke Island, but it ultimately failed. So this first attempt that Raleigh tried under um, Ralph Lane, it was troubled by a lack of supplies and particularly poor relations with the local, local Native Americans, particularly the Croatoan tribe. In 1586, Lane and his colonists abandoned the settlements and returned to England with Sir Francis Drake. So it was on the second attempt that was led by John White. He's important, so don't forget his name if you're listening. Uh, it, the second attempt was led by John White in 1587. It's since become notorious and mysterious in U.S. history due to the unexplained disappearance of its population. And what I find so fascinating about this, White and his, his colonists were actually arriving in Roanoke right as Lane and his people were leaving. So I like to imagine that they saw each other's ships as they were kind of crossing each other. So... It, I, that's so interesting. And White actually had a lot of reservations about settling Roanoke and kind of took this as an omen to not go settle this region. He actually attempted to travel north to the Chesapeake Bay to find safer ground, maybe higher ground. But the captain of the ship, Simon Fernandez, insisted that the colonists stay in Roanoke. Now, we've talked a lot in these episodes. We've We've highlighted pretty much all of the major European groups that colonize North America or the Caribbean, right? We did an episode on Spanish Florida and the Spanish expeditions. We talked about Sir Isaac Jogues and the French. That also included references to the Dutch. So we've we've talked about Spain and France and Holland. Our student listeners probably know that Portugal colonized part of the New World. But why is it that England is sort of so late to the colonization game. And and I always find this interesting because obviously England becomes the dominant colonizer of the new world and yet they're really behind the eight ball. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Well, Mr. Rickson, um, as with most things in English history, we can blame this firmly on the shoulders of King Henry VIII. Um the earliest English claims to North America were in 1497, so this was only five years after the Columbus expedition, when John Cabot explored the coast of Newfoundland in Canada under the patronage of King Henry VII. But England never followed up on these claims because they were pretty busy at home 
with the drama of his son, Henry VIII. Um, so if you're familiar with this part of English history, Henry VIII was the one that took, what, seven, six or seven wives? Uh, he broke with the Catholic Church, which created a ton of political drama at home and abroad and social unrest with, you know, the whole population of England thinking that they were going to be excommunicated because their king broke with the Pope. Uh, so not really a good time to invest in overseas ventures if you're Henry VIII. Um, under his successor, Elizabeth I, the English started to challenge the Spanish for shipping lanes in the Atlantic and got pretty good at attacking Spanish ships with their privateers, which if you don't know what a privateer is, that's a government-sanctioned pirate who were oftentimes nobles like Sir Francis Drake in uh, English lore. So they stole a lot of gold and silver from these Spanish ships, which allowed them to become super wealthy and helped them to pool their resources to fight the Anglo-Spanish War and then also start funding explorers to go travel. So they did want to create a permanent settlement, but the English were just as motivated by wealth and access to the spice trade as other European powers were at this time, like we've talked about with the Spanish and the French. In fact, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh pushed very heavily for John White to continue with the second Roanoke settlement because he strongly believed that the Pacific coast was on the other side of the explored areas of Virginia and North Carolina. So Raleigh's not really into the settlement per se. He's into the settlement as a way to help him access the spice trade. That's going to be his main end to the Roanoke expedition. So I have to imagine then that given the sort of conflicting reasons and justifications for why this expedition is getting started, I have to imagine that doesn't really bode well for the expedition or the colony. Am I am I right in assuming that? You couldn't be more right. Um, so imagine you're John White and a group of this 117 women and children and men that are coming and you see the people who lived there before you get there escaping as you were coming in. So they're basically like, what is going on? Um, so initially things kind of start off on a rocky omen. So John White was supposed to meet with 15 men stationed in Roanoke from Lane's colony. But when they arrived, they saw that the fort had been dismantled and was totally overgrown with watermelons, which I thought was kind of cool. Uh, it's July. It's summery. It's watermelon season. The only sign that the men had ever been there was human bones left from one of them. Uh, White would go on to write that he believed that this man had been killed by the local natives because they were aware that the relations were not so great. One of White's own colonists was actually killed three days after their arrival while he was out fishing for crabs uh, on his own. So we're off to a pretty rough start. So one of the first things that John White attempts to do is to reestablish relations with the Croatoan people with the help of their ally, Chief Mantio, which was, uh, I forget, I believe he was of the Wanchese people, which are just to the south of Man Man Mantio Island or Roanoke Island. So the Croatoan did explain during these peace negotiations that a coalition of mainland tribes had actually attacked those 15 men from the first settlement. And Chief Manio does actually go on to ultimately smooth the relationships between the colonists and the Croatoan people. So we do see a little bit of uh, working together 
to move on to a more successful type of settlement. Now, once the colonists have sort of established this sort of tenuous peace relationship with the local Native American tribes, does does that help the colony in any way? Does it sort of stabilize it or give it a little bit of, of sort of permanence at this point? Yeah, it absolutely does. And that's something that we're going to see in listeners. You'll learn as we kind of get into this first uh, bit of American history when the school year starts. You really need uh, solid, positive relations between colonists and natives during this early stage for anything to happen. Um, So this colony was largely made up of middle class Londoners who probably came along on this mission to become landed gentry. So land available for ownership was basically non-existent in England at this time. So these people were hoping to improve their social standing by owning land in the new world, which was abundant. In in order to gain a title or some type of substance in the English social hierarchy, you need to own land. So this is their solution to this. So Unlike the first attempt to settle, this party included women and children, but no organized military force. So we kind of start to see some problems happening here. It's also really interesting because we see here this idea of English colonists basically trying to transplant English culture, society, and ideas about land ownership in the new world. And As we'll see in the study of early American history in the school year, this is going to be a major component of their rocky relationships and misunderstandings with Native Americans who have very different ideas about land ownership. So as we mentioned in our episode on Isaac Jogues, the French actually take a much different approach by adapting to native culture, which is going to create much friendlier relationships and stronger alliances, whereas the English basically ignore the natives to a large extent and go out of their way to not adapt to their culture and remain English, which is going to create some tension there. So anyway, White stays with his people for about a year or so. So They build a somewhat successful village and have a peaceful relationship with the local Croatoan tribe. They trade with each other and they learn some basic farming techniques. White's daughter, Eleanor White Dare, and her husband, Alysius Dare, I have trouble pronouncing his name, Uh, they come along and they give birth to the first English-born baby in the New World, Virginia Dare, who has since become like part of a major uh, part of American folklore surrounding the mystery of the Lost Colony. So that's kind of cool. But ultimately, Roanoke was becoming a bit difficult to live in due to the lack of resources and a reprisal of some poor relations with the Croatoans. So the colonists had decided to move 50 miles northward up the Albemarle Sound. And John White feels confident in the success of the colony at this point. So he returns to England with the plan to bring more supplies back to the colony in 1588. But the Anglo-Spanish War and, you know, Spanish Armada stuff, which is happening at this time, uh, delays his trip to Roanoke until 1590. So he's gone for a full three years. So in that interim period, once he finally gets back from England to the Roanoke colony, this is where 
the mystery part begins, right? Yeah, so White returns to Roanoke in 1590, three years after he set out, and everyone and almost everything had completely vanished. So it's pretty freaky. When White returned to the settlement in Roanoke, he found the settlement fortified, but completely abandoned. There was no sign of the colonists, and the only clue to their fate was the word Croatoan, which was carved into the palisade of one of the fortifications. White believed that this meant that the colonists had relocated to Croatoan Island, which is now Hatteras Island and is south of uh, Roanoke. Unfortunately, rough seas and a lost anchor forced his rescue mission um, to have to return to England, and White was never able to find the lost settlers, which included his daughter and his granddaughter. So the personal element to that is also really heartbreaking. The fate of the 117 colonists remains unknown, and there's been no conclusive evidence to put the mystery at rest. But as you might imagine, several theories have been formulated. Through the 1600s, uh, people, particularly the Jamestown settlers who weren't living too far away from this original settlement, were fascinated by this story and sought out answers. But it fell out of popular imagination until the mid-1800s or so, when the country experienced a new fascination with the supernatural and the gothic. Like, if you kind of think about Edgar Allan Poe and like that kind of creepy macabre era, we kind of get back into this. And it gained renewed popularity in the late 1930s with the discovery of the Dare Stones. Okay, so this brings us back to what you started with when you dropped us into history. So you referenced these Dare Stones at the beginning of today's episode. So how are they connected to solving or trying to figure out this mystery? Yeah, this is really kind of cool and creepy stuff. So the very first Dare Stone was discovered in 1937 by that California tourist and his wife. And when he found it, the world believed that it finally found the answer to the whereabouts of the lost colony. And this kind of comes together as well with the discovery of 48 total stones that were inscribed with cryptic messages. And all of these stones were found throughout 1937 to 1941. And almost all of them were supposedly written by Eleanor White Dare, the daughter of John Dare, as messages to her father explaining what had happened. So taken together, the messages on these stones actually form a narrative from 1591 to 1603, in which the lost colonists migrated from Roanoke to the Chattahoochee River Valley near present-day Atlanta, Georgia. So the very the most famous of all of these is the first one that was found, and it definitely contains the most information. So I'm going to read it to you. It's actually like, it's kind of written in a poetic style, which is weird given the circumstances, but I'm going to read it and you let me know what you think. Father, soon after you go for England, we came here. Only misery and war for two years. Above half dead these two years, more from sickness being 24. A savage with a message of a ship came to us. Within a small space of time, they became frightened of revenge and ran all away. We believe it was not you. Soon after, the savages said spirits were angry. Suddenly, they murdered all save seven. My child and Anias, her husband, too, were slain with much misery. Buried all near four miles east this river upon a small hill. Names were written all there on a rock. Put this there also, if a savage shows this to you, we promised you would give them great plenty 
presidents, signed E.W.D. Eleanor White Dare. Okay, so what do you think of that? I have to be honest, Mrs. Allgood, that, it sounds a little fishy. It's just, I just know that as as a history teacher, I feel like at some point, something would have been discovered prior to 1937. So again, I'm I'm not totally buying the story just yet. Hold on one second. I'm doing a bit of math that I just realized. So I just subtracted 1937 from 1597 when these people went missing. And it's a total 340 years, which is like a perfectly like round number. Which mm-hmm. also kind of gives me something to think about that this happened to be exactly 340 years after. That was kind of right. my first red flag because people love round numbers like the 150th celebration of the Civil War, whatever. There's always some kind of reprisal and public memory of certain things. And I also just, I think it's a little too perfect. I think that's the problem. And the original stone is actually written in Old English, which I didn't read because I can't get through it. (laughs) (laughs) Which would make it kind of convincing if you're finding it on the banks of the river in the 1930s. Um, Also, what I also realized when I was putting together our drop us into history, 1937 was also the year that Amelia Earhart vanished. So I think there's already kind of this current running through like the American public of cool, creepy mysteries and that kind of stuff. So I think this just fits really nicely in what's already going on at the time. So anyway, this first stone refers to another stone marking a mass grave. If you picked up on that, it's uh, they were all buried four miles east of this river on a small hill. Their names were written there on a rock. Um, so the public or the, the press picks up on this and they publish it and it just turns in to this media frenzy. People get so excited. They start intensely searching for this mass grave along the, the river and they start looking for additional stones and it turns into this huge scavenger hunt. And as I mentioned, 48 of these stones, each weighing about 20 pounds or so, were found by totally different people. So one more thoughts and feelings check before I give it away. What are you thinking so far? Just to be honest, Mrs. Allgood, I think that if you're being attacked by Native Americans or your something unforeseen is happening to your colony in the New World, I don't know if you're going to take the time to carve into 48 specific stones and scatter them throughout the region. That that seems like a lot of work. And, and if these people are in distress, I don't suspect that they're going to have the time and energy to do this. Definitely the energy. I was thinking about that too. I was like, I've tried like when I was a kid to carve into stone. It's really hard. And like, these are 20 pound stones being carved by this like tiny little Londoner woman. I don't think she has the strength to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, also, where do you get, like, wood would be much more plentiful than stone. I, yeah, I don't buy it. There's too many things. But it makes for a good story. Um, but yeah, ultimately, all of these stones were connected by to a Georgia stone cutter named Bill Eberhardt by 1941. And the whole thing was ruled a hoax. Womp womp. Who saw that coming? Everyone. However, the very first stone that was found, the one that I read, has never been totally proven or disproven. Uh, So conspiracy theorists really hold on tight to this as hard evidence, but I still, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. 
But having said all that, so I think we've dispelled, or at least I think you and I both have dispelled this, this, these dare stones, if you will. But that ultimately doesn't answer the question that this colony did in fact disappear. And I would imagine that at this point, over you know a couple hundred years, that historians have developed a, a couple of different theories about the whereabouts of the colony after they left. Can you can you talk a little bit about those those theories that have been posited over the centuries? All right. So I picked out my six top favorite theories. Uh, they range from pretty logical to just downright crazy, and I've kind of highlighted them and I've also provided some commentary to explain the historical likeliness of all of them. So let's start with theory number one, starvation and cannibalism. Cannibalism is a pretty convenient form of murder. You get a free meal and it also leaves very little (laughs) evidence. Um, But that kind of brings us to the question, what about the leftover bones? Like people are going to eat the flesh off of their neighbors, but what what about the bones? Uh, The answer to this Bones were often ground up by both European societies and native groups at this time to be used in medical remedies, but also like 117 people worth of bones. I I don't know. Uh, Native American tribes at the time also reported an internal conflict going on among the settlers themselves. Uh, There was also said to be a plague of some sort that infected most of the settlers, which led to what has been called by some I don't want to call them historians, um, an aggressive zombie disease (laughs) (laughs) that caused people to actually want to eat each other. Um, I'm not prone to believe all of this, especially the zombie stuff, because there's no like biological evidence to support it. But uh, using Jamestown as kind of a reference point, I'm not ready to rule out starvation and cannibalism. One major detail that does get discussed often in the history of the lost colony is that the settlers arrived in july of 1587 and contrary to what i had read and actually said in this podcast a couple minutes ago white didn't actually stay for a year he left the settlers in august of 1587 so he was really only there for a month not a year so we have no idea what could have happened to the settlers during the winter because John White's really our main source for the the factual things that happened here. So with poor relations with the natives and relatively little knowledge of farming, it's entirely positive or possible that these people could have starved to death in the winter. Um, These people are mostly middle-class Londoners. They're not the country farming type. But then that also leads to this question, if they starved to death, where are their bodies? Maybe they got eaten. Who knows? All right. So theory number two, uh, the colonists fell victim to witchcraft. The neighboring native tribes had pretty strong beliefs about a dark spirit who lived in the woods on Manio Island where the settlement was placed, leading some paranormal enthusiasts to believe that this is connected to the disappearance of the settlers. Um, but it's more likely that an internal conflict among the settlers led people to accuse each other of witchcraft, not unlike what we see in Salem 100 years later. This is strongly connected to theory number three, that something magical is in the woods. So the Croatoan natives had really strong beliefs about witchcraft and folklore about evil spirits, and one of these greater spirits took the form of a reptile. Uh, 
and the natives reported a strange phenomenon occurring around the same time as the Roanoke vanishing, uh, stuff like the sudden death of birds falling out of the sky and other wildlife just being found dead with no like marks of being killed were happening. So the belief of the natives was that this reptile spirit would attach itself to humans, causing them to take on demonic traits and wipe each other out while also cursing the entire region. There was another spirit who, if angered, would absorb the offenders into the surrounding woods, meaning that the people of Roanoke never vanished, but were basically turned into trees. Uh, so, so believe it or not, Mr. Rickson, uh, many people think that this is pure superstition. <laughs> so, um, so I, I mean, Mrs. Allgood, I think I, I think all of us like a good sort of mystery, but of course, it's hard to it's hard to put a you know, sort of put your hands around stories that are a little more macabre or mysterious or supernatural, right? I think that people. I think that a lot of times people might be looking for things that are, seem a little more realistic. So what are some of the more likely causes for the colony's disappearance that are that are rooted in sort of historical knowledge or just what, what we know about other colonies at, of the time? Yeah, totally. Uh, these first three theories are definitely more... They tell a fun story, I guess, would be a good way to say it, but they're definitely not realistic. Actually, if any of you listeners are American Horror Story fans, I don't know if it was the last season or the one before, but it was called Roanoke. Like, that was the theme of the entire series, and it kind of is hinged on this idea that there's something dark and evil living into the woods that make people go crazy. Um, so, great story, but highly unlikely, as you mentioned. So. Theory number four, which is actually a two-parter, is that it was really all just politics and war all along. So England and Spain, as we know, were at war with each other in Europe during this time. That's what prevented John White from returning back to the Roanoke colony to resupply his people. Um, so there are Spanish troops stationed in Florida at this time, which we know from our episode on Juan Ponce de Leon. So it's possible that in the three years that White was gone, the Spaniards took a trip north to eliminate their rivals. There's an anthropologist by the name of Lee Miller um, that also believes that the colonists were part of a secret plot by Sir Francis Walsingham, another member of the court of Queen Elizabeth I and her secretary of state. The theory is that the colonists were intentionally stranded in order to sabotage Sir Walter Raleigh, who funded the expedition and was granted a royal patent for all the land that he would settle. So the idea behind this is that it's all politics and intrigue. He was jealous of Sir Walter Raleigh, so perhaps purposefully stranded these people. But I don't know that I believe either the Spanish killing the colonists thing or the Walsingham stranding them on purpose thing. I the Spanish troops in Florida like maybe knew that there was a small English settlement to the north, but also consider how long it took for news to travel overseas at this time. And I also don't believe that a non-military colony would be a top priority for the Spanish, especially when they're busy defending themselves from natives and killing French Huguenots in Florida at this time. And for the Walsingham jealousy plot, I, I think it's a good story, but I, I just don't buy it. I think it's unlikely. Uh, theory number five uh, is that they just got bored and they left, which 
Okay, I can see. Uh, people grew tired of waiting for John White to return. He was supposed to be back the next year. And when he doesn't come and there's no news, they just kind of assume that, okay, I guess he's not coming back. We're just going to go see where the wind takes us. Um, so the theory is that they tried to sail back to England or up the Chesapeake uh, Bay on their own. Some historians believe that the colonists didn't have a ship big enough to sail all of them, which would make this theory highly unlikely. But on the flip side, if they were able to do this and got shipwrecked in the Atlantic, there are so many shipwrecks that have gone unnoticed, unreported, people would have never known. But the only thing to support this theory are the dare stones, which aren't accurate. So kind of take that with a grain of salt. Which brings us to our last theory, theory number six. Roanoke was absorbed by native tribes. It's possible that the people of Roanoke needed to relocate due to a shortage of supplies or illness, particularly in the winter, as I mentioned before, and they attempted to move inland. We do know that they did indeed travel to or planned to travel north up the Albemarle Sound, uh, they had informed White of this before he left on his supply mission. And on the way, they very well could have been conquered or taken captive by the neighboring native tribes. So Indian captivity was actually pretty common at this time. Native tribes in this area would capture people from rival tribes in times of war. Uh, and this would be true of how they probably encountered the European colonists. Many people would be conquered as slaves but some people were warmly welcomed into their societies and they would basically adopt a person and project the personality and kinship ties of a deceased loved one on that adopted person, whether it be a child, a brother, a parent. It's super interesting. It's not totally impossible. I think in, in kind of listening to this and, and you and I kind of looking at the research for this, this, this last theory kind of seems, I think, the most plausible. And I know that when you were doing your research, you found some other pieces of evidence that, that lend some support to this, this last idea. Can you, can you uh, elaborate on those some more? Yeah, I think part of what makes this theory the most believable is that historically, there's a lot to back it up, which we don't have with the rest of them. There are several pieces of evidence. Uh, the best one is the word Croatoan that was carved in the camp. It's the island south of Roanoke, what's modern day Hatteras, and it's also the name of the tribe that lived nearby. So it could mean either of those things. And when White left, the settlers had a pretty good relationship with the Croatoan people. So it's not wild to think that they just kind of broke up their camp and went to go join and live with these native peoples. Personal accounts from Jamestown in 1607 also support this theory. Some people reported seeing European-made uh, goods in the area at this time. And a 1607 account of the area also claims to have spotted four men clothed in European-style clothes that were living with natives in the region. Um, the only flip side thing to this is to just assume that there are no European goods that have gone this far north into America at this point. And the Spanish have been in Latin America for about a hundred years or so. So it's also not impossible that they could have just seen Spanish stuff that had traveled north through trade at this point. But contemporary archaeologists have found also plenty of evidence, including a gold signet ring, the partial remains of a sword, and a slate and pencil that match the belongings of people who lived in Roanoke at the time. So there is archaeological evidence. Um, 
But what also kind of makes sense to me as well is that it's totally possible that the colonists were conquered instead of lovingly welcomed, as I would like to imagine. The secretary of Jamestown, William Strachey, or Strachey, reported seeing natives with European slaves, which would kind of go back to this theory of captivity. Uh, Strachey also claims that Chief Powhatan had confessed to John Smith that his people murdered the Roanoke tribe for a aligning with a rival tribe. And that on its own might sound conclusive, but historians aren't ready to accept an explanation that can only be supported by a single source, which is Strachey, who is quoting hearsay. So who knows? I guess I'll, I'll close with this sort of final question then, Mrs. Allgood. You, you mentioned at the beginning that this was actually a topic that you wanted to cover as part of our regular Who Knew series. So why is it that this story interests you as much as it does? Again, it's first off, it's really interesting and fascinating, but I'm curious as to why you find it so interesting and fascinating. Yeah, I think I've just always kind of been like kind of captured by like, like you said, quirky history and the macabre, especially like I like spooky stories and just like weird unexplained phenomenon. But what I did find to be most interesting especially during my research that I've conducted over the last couple of days, is that the colony barely existed in full. We can only confirm that these people for sure lived on Roanoke Island for a full month. So the time that John White was there between July and August. We have no records of them after that. Growing up, the height of the mystery and the excitement around it made me believe that it was considerably more established than it actually was. Uh, so the idea of this established village and people just disappearing was like, whoa, but like, these people could have just been there for 30 days and were attacked by natives. We, it, we have no idea. It's also so fascinating to see how the mystery has captured the public's at imagination over the past 450 years. While many of the conspiracy theories that have popped up are pretty silly, I mean, it just goes to show how people like to tell a good story and make sense of our country's past. It's awesome. So, Mr. Rickson, I have to ask, after hearing all of these crazy theories, what's your take on this mystery? So I think, so I'll answer that in in two parts. I think in the sort of micro, what actually happened to the colony, I tend to believe the, the story about they were absorbed or captured by the local Native American tribe, that seems the most plausible. One thing that we won't get to cover a whole lot with the students, but we have referenced Jamestown a lot. And one of the things that we have learned recently in the historical record is that Jamestown, unfortunately, succumbed to cannibalism. Now, when we say that, we what what the kind of cannibalism that happened in Jamestown is people did not kill one another and then eat them. What typically happened was the colony ran very short on food. They suffered a a severe famine and people died of starvation. And then that was people's last resort. So I'm partial to believe part of that element of it as well. I think on a macro level, I think that what what is so fascinating about this story, and I think it's part of a larger American tradition, is Americans love conspiracy theories, and there are so many weird stories in American history that a lot of people really, really are familiar with. You mentioned Amelia Earhart, right? What happened to Amelia Earhart? People believe in Bigfoot. That is a very unique American 
story. People are interested in, we talked about Mesa Verde. I mean, there are some people that think that Mesa Verde was abducted by aliens, right? There's Area 51, there's UFOs, there's the Kennedy assassination. I mean, there's even a bucket of conspiracy theory that thinks that we didn't land on the moon in 1969. So I think that in a lot of ways, the the lost colony is sort of this this sort of encapsulation of of everything we like about America's story. And I think to your point, sometimes the the things that you come up with in your own mind are a lot more fun and interesting than just they got absorbed by the local Native American tribe. So I think it's it's an interesting combination of things. And it's it's one of the reasons I love history as much as I do is that there's there's so much to explore. And in fact, sort of exploring the histories of the conspiracies is also kind of fun. I absolutely agree. And I, I like what you said. It, there's so many things in history to kind of dive into and explore. And there's never really one simple answer to really any of the questions that we ask. And that's something that we hope to teach to our, our students in A-Push. And I'm excited for all the conversations we're going to get into throughout the year with you guys. So anyway, this brings us to the end of our story, which leads us to the fact off. So Mrs. Allgood, I have to tell you that one of the things I'm excited about in the fact off is I was actually having a hard time finding some facts for the fact off because first of all, you did an incredible job of sort of this exhaustive study of the lost colony. But I mentioned a bunch of those conspiracy theories. And honestly, when you do research on the lost colony, you kind of end up in an internet rabbit hole where you're looking at other conspiracies and what is sort of related to the lost colony. So in doing that, a lot of other conspiracy theories or American mysteries came up. So this is a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to riff on one of them for my first fact, which has always interested me. And that's the legend of the Jersey Devil. So according to local legend in southern New Jersey, in 1735, a woman named Jane Leeds, who had already had 12 children, learned she was pregnant with her 13th child. So this woman had spent most of her childbearing life in labor, and raising 12 kids, I would imagine, is pretty hard. So she was really frustrated that she was pregnant with a 13th child. So According to legend, she cursed the child and she blamed the devil for getting her pregnant again. Now, when she went into labor, which of course, according to the legends, happened on a dark and stormy night, no less, the child was born, but then it suddenly turned into a creature with a goat-like head, cloven hooves, leather wings like a bat, and a forked tail. Now, locals claim that this creature flew up through the chimney. It settled in what's called the Pine Barrens, which is this large forest in southern New Jersey, which has all sorts of weird stories and legends to it. And people who live in this part of New Jersey have talked about the legend of this creature for centuries. So for my sports fans out there, if you ever wondered where the New Jersey Devils of the National Hockey League got their name, 
this is where it comes from. It comes from this really weird local legend in southern New Jersey. But again, when you when you look up the lost colony, you end up in this rabbit hole. And, and the Jersey Devil was one that popped up in my research. First of all, only you could tie the story to hockey. So it's all <laughs> I had to do it. I had to do it, Mrs. Allgood. I had to. Second of all... This, this New Jersey devil sounds like a backward Santa Claus. He, instead of going down the chimney to like bring love and joy, he goes out of the chimney to spread terror. I love it. That's awesome. Also, also <laughs> for the students who may not be familiar, there was a television show in the 90s and 2000s called The X-Files, which explores a lot of these conspiracy theories and is a, is a really fun binge watch if you're interested in that sort of thing. There actually is an episode where the, the title character, the lead characters, Mulder and Scully, are investigating the Jersey Devil in the Pine Barrens. So uh, if you want to learn a little bit about sort of American folklore, actually, The X-Files is a good place to start because many of the episodes kind of... Uh, traffic in that that element or that world oh boy i love it all right so for those of you guys who vacationed in the outer banks you may have seen billboards or advertisements in the tourist coupon books for a drama production entitled the lost colony you can travel to actual roanoke island which is now mantio island and see the original earthworks from the settlement of the lane and dare expeditions and you can also experience a musical interpretation of the story of the lost colony. Five out of five would recommend that you go. Uh, if you've ever dreamt of seeing Sir Walter Raleigh singing and dancing in tights, this is literally your only chance to experience this. It is actually, it's pretty cool. I've gone a couple of times in my youth. Uh, it's staged in an amphitheater with a view of the Albemarle Sound. So like, you're basically like on this peninsula and you can see like the water that these people like came into when they waited on shore. It's so dramatic. The start, the show starts at sunset. So like it has this cool, like eerie and spooky feel to it. Um, but in doing today's research, I realized that the same play debuted in 1937, the same year that the first dare stone was discovered. So it's, very likely that it was directly influenced by the media frenzy surrounding the Dare Stones and the original conspiracy theories. So did you know in 1595, Sir Walter Raleigh pledged to launch an investigation into the disappearance of the Roanoke colonists? He actually got money from the crown to build up a team and pay for ships and supplies, but he actually sailed past the Outer Banks on his transatlantic voyage. Now, he claimed that bad weather prevented him from stopping. It would later be uncovered that Raleigh just used the investigation story as a cover for his real intent, which was an expedition to find the lost city of El Dorado. You know, our listeners might be wondering, as I was wondering, what is El Dorado? El Dorado, or the Golden One, refers to a mythical tribal chief of an indigenous tribe in present-day Colombia who, according to legend, covered himself with gold dust before being submerged in water as part of an initiation rite, almost like a baptism. European explorers continually added to the story, kind of like what we've been seeing here with the Lost Colony myth, um, and some believe that... Uh, 
his burial site was full of riches like the ancient Egyptians, or in some versions of the legend, either an entire city or complex made of gold. So I'll close with this fact, and this has to do with some of the archaeology around the possible disappearance of the of the colony. So in 2016, archaeologists uncovered new evidence that might provide clues to the real fate of the Roanoke colonists. In a place titled Site X in Bertie County, archaeologists have uncovered about 60 or so European artifacts that would put these colonists in this location around the time that they had vanished. Now, Site X is located about 50 miles northwest of Roanoke, up the Albemarle Sound, which is exactly where the colonists told John White that they would relocate. So perhaps, listeners, we have some evidence that will lead us to solve the lost colony mystery. <laughs> again, Mrs. Olga, thank you for the sound effects. That's again, that's a Twilight Zone reference. We've got X Files and Twilight Zone in the same episode of Who Knew Presents. Excellent. Oh, everything goes back to history. It's amazing. All right. Absolutely. Well, anyway, uh, for those of you guys who are still listening at the end of this episode, you're welcome for the knowledge and the sound effects. Um, I I hope you guys learned something good today. I had so much fun doing the research and presenting on our topic. Absolutely. So I first off, I want to thank you, Mrs. Allgood, for all the work that you put into this episode and all the work that you've put into our other episodes. This has been a really fun mini-series to do sort of outside of our regular Who Knew feed. And again, I hope that these I hope that these episodes give our student listeners some frame of reference as we get the school year underway about kind of what we're going to be tackling, some of the, the themes that pop up. And, and I hope it's also a good entry point for our new listeners into our regular podcast feed for Who Knew a History Podcast. So you can find all of these episodes on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. You can find them on anchor.fm. You can find both feeds. Again, we're going to be releasing these episodes in two different places. And once you have finished, if you're a new listener and you've listened to this series, we encourage you to dive into our regular Who Knew feed. We're going to be continuing episodes over the summer, and we really run the gamut. We talk about music, sports, pop culture, all pasta. sorts of interest. Pasta, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Can't forget our buddy, Chef Boyardee. Oh, so, um, but we encourage you to listen to that, and we hope that this is a good entry point for you as we get get a, get going with our exploration of history. So, again, on behalf of Mrs. Allgood, this is Mr. Rickson, and we thank you guys for listening to our limited series, Who Knew Presents the New World. Thanks again, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye.